hey, if you're listening to this, you're about to listen to uh, a lecture from my class, biology slash psychology, 2606, Introduction to Behavioral Neuroscience for the fall term here at Algoma University. I'll be your host, Dave Broadbeck. I hope you get something out of it, but as I've said many times before, the real hope here is that my students get something out of it. If you do, well, that's also good. Oh, if you are one of my students, that definitely, you know, I'm starting to ramble. Without further ado, here's some intro music and then, you know, me talking about brains. All right, so uh, today we'll finish up the stuff on brain organization. That's the plan. So far, we're totally on schedule. That will almost certainly change. Uh, some stuff should take longer. I don't know why I don't change things. That's because I'm lazy. But anyway, uh, let's talk about this. Is I believe where we left off with some of these important subcortical structures. Uh, I brought my not only my ball cap, but I also brought the brain model today. So you need to get a bit of a better feel for this. If I can get it open. Dare fall apart, you. This is this is this is actually how neurosurgeons talk. Don't you dare fall apart, you son of a. Anyway, so when we say subcortical, this is cortex, right? The, the wrinkly bits. Cortex is the wrinkly bits, right? And then subcortical would be anything underneath here. So underneath the orange, so all this stuff here, all the stuff that's in white on this diagram. This here is the, the, the cerebellum, but all this stuff. I don't know how that helps, but I just did it anyway. Um, right, so we went over some of these, I think all this whole slide the other day. Uh, hippocampus, amygdala, thalamus, hypothalamus, accumbens, which I think I misspelled, uh, and the medulla, I believe that was the last thing on that slide, it is. Okay. Okay. So all these structures again, underneath the wrinkly bits. They're subcortical. Right? All right. There we go. So the brain's divided into two hemispheres, as you can see with our model here. We got the, this would be the, make sure I got this oriented properly, yes. So here's the right hemisphere. So it's if you're looking out, your right, your left. That's the right and left hemisphere thing, okay? And they're connected by they're connected by the corpus callosum. It's this white stuff here. There's a ventricle. Did we talk about ventricles the other day? Okay, so that's just it's an empty bit. Cerebral spinal fluid is made in there. And this is the corpus callosum. That is Latin for big body. Corpus is body, callosum. You should be able to guess what callosum means. Big, colossal, giant, colosseum, colossum, colossus. Colossus was a great big statue. Col col Corpus Colossum. You don't have to know that much Latin. I just taught you a Latin adjective, Colossum. Okay. I don't want to take that part of it. It gets too complicated to put back together. So the Corpus Colossum connects the two parts of our brain. And I mentioned the other day that people born, so biological sex being female, they have larger, on average, Corpus callosum than people who are born biological sex male. Now, 
Does that really matter? It probably makes up for the fact that, on average, the neuronal density uh, and volume of the brain in, again, when I say male and female in this case, I'm using them in biological sex, not in gender. Um, that females have literally smaller brains than males, but it doesn't matter because nothing shows up cognitively, really. They're small little things, but they're so unimportant that they don't matter. We talked about the spatial navigation thing the other day between men and women. It doesn't matter. Like, it's so, it's reliable. You can find it in an experiment, but it's not like it's something that should prevent anybody from doing anything. That's what I'm saying. Okay. So, you might think, well, if they have smaller brains, yeah, but bigger corpus callosum, so there's more communication. This is the notion, no one really know this. There's more communication between the left and right hemispheres in women than there is in men. So it averages out. It's two ways to get to the same thing, which is to be these co amazing, cognitively complex animals. Now, not all animals have a corpus callosum. Not all animals have a corpus callosum. Some animals, in fact, don't. Uh, birds have a very small bundle of fibers at the back of their brain. I wonder if I can. Okay, I'm going to draw this in a second. I've got a blank slide coming up. This is going to allow us to do some really interesting research. Now, wouldn't it be interesting if we as humans could take humans into the lab and sever it with our corpus callosum? That sounds horrible. We wouldn't do that. What if something happened that someone had to have that done? So there are people who have epileptic. This is a last resort sort of thing. People who have epilepsy, it's not done so much anymore, but it is done sometimes. And you sever the corpus callosum, because if the seizure starts in the right hemisphere, but then spreads to the left, so what you do is you just cut this in half, and then it doesn't travel to the other hemisphere. That's obviously an extreme thing to do. Normally, and that isn't done so much anymore. So you get what's called a split brain patient in a human. And you can find that cool localization phase with people like that. It's almost like they have two minds. Why? So what happens is, Usually we're good at spatial things from our right hemisphere. On average, especially right-handed people. The left-handed people, pretty much, that's true too. You're told probably, and it's all completely switched in left-handers, not really. It's switched a little bit. So it's about, normally it would be like, right-handed people, 90 odd percent have spatial, they're better with spatial things in their right hemisphere than in the left. And in the left-handed people, it's about 70%. So they said about 30% are switched. Yes? Are you familiar with the theory that um, older, like more ancient humans uh, had a more separated brain structure? Yes, the bicameral mind. I am indeed familiar with that. Opinion pile of garbage. Um, it's a really neat idea. It just has no evidence whatsoever. So the idea of the bicameral mind is the before civilization started, well, even a little after that. You get your ancient Greeks. So, the idea that they have voices in their head, that's God's talking to them. Because they have two different minds. So those things, when they write those things down, you know, Homer actually thought, no, Homer Simpson. Homer actually thought 
that you know Apollo and Zeus were talking to. Because he heard voices in his head. With us, we have a internal monologue. We all do, like most of us. If you don't, that's fine too. But I got kind of a narrator in my head, a little of you. Sometimes you'll say something to yourself and you won't say it publicly because you think, eh, that's probably offensive to somebody, but I found it funny. You know, that's often when you see me lecturing you, and I go, <laughs> for no apparent reason. That's because I've decided I'm not going to say that. Um, so the notion is that that's why we had this huge leap. First of all, it's very, it's extremely Western-centric. The same thing is there's no evidence for it, except for really weak sort of, it's one of these things, let's, let's, let me back up. Richard Dawkins talked about this idea and he said, it's either the most clever thing I've ever read or completely ridiculous. It's much more likely it's in the same category. It's an interesting thing to bring it up. It was actually, it's uh, brought up a lot in the TV show Westworld, which is cool. I didn't expect to hear things about that on a TV show I was watching. Season, I think two, they bring it up a lot. It's a cool idea. I just don't think it's probably not true. It's also almost impossible to test. So it's a fun idea. It's great for fiction. It's great for fiction. Cool question. So what you end up with is, as I said, you have spatial right, yeah, sort of linguistic left, kind of. Don't overdo that. But if I gave a split brain patient a set of blocks, and I said, can you build this thing? So you just give them a line diagram of some, some thing. And I have to use my tablet for this. So you show them, you know, I want one dark and one light. That and uh, something up here like this. So they all stick together, they're like Legos or toggles or something like that. So I show you this, and I can show you it from different angles, and I give you some blocks, and I say build that. Now, for all of us, this is trivial, isn't it? We can all do this, and we could all done this when we were maybe two and a half, right? Maybe two. You do this for the split brain patient. And you say, yeah, but you have to use your right hand. Because your left hand is controlled by your right hemisphere. And they have much more trouble doing it. And in fact, in a split brain patient, even when the adults say you have to use your left hand, when you put it in front of them, they try to do it. <laughs> and the two hands fight with each other. The right hand tries to do things, but it can't as well because typically the left hemisphere, which controls the right arm, isn't as good at spatial tasks. So in fact, it does things. You, you will see video if you take a look at it. You'll probably find some stuff on YouTube of split brain patients. They'll actually, one hand will take the other and move it away. It's like, stop it. Wild stuff. There's not a lot of those people happily, because that's obviously not a pleasant way to live. It's better than epileptic seizures that spread from one hemisphere to the other. But like I said, we don't tend to control that. So that's one thing we can talk about humans. We can actually look for lateralization by looking at split brain patients because things are lateralized very generally, very generally left language, right spatial. But that's extremely general. You have to remember that, that it's, it's not like people, it's, you know, can't speak or something if they don't have a corpus callosum, whatever. But you get these really cool experiments with birds because birds don't have so they actually are a whole order 
no, class, of animals that are slipper and Now, there is some connection between the left and right hemisphere in a bird. Can you draw a picture? No, I can. Perfect. Nice blank. It's a blank canvas. Okay. So if you think about a bird brain, it's like two different brains and there's a little connection there to one. Stuff does, information does flow from one hemisphere to the other. But it is the case that the left eye, for example, goes to the right brain. The right eye goes to the left brain, just like you knew. So if we cover up one eye, and teach the animal something, will its other, and then you remove the cover and put the cover on the other eye, how will the animal do in the task? Well, if it's the case that these birds transfer information from one hemisphere to the other, they'll do fine. If they can't transfer stuff, they'll do poorly. So you use a very simple task, something called matching to sample. So let me just write that out. Delayed matching to sample. This is what we're going to do. We're going to present something to some birds. We're going to show them a green dot on a computer touch screen. It says neurons there. I don't want to say that. I don't care. Ha! Teach it. So you do that, and then you have what's called a retention interval. So that comes on, the bird looks at it, bird's gonna have to peck it a couple of times on your touch screen. So we have what's called retention interval. So it goes off for five seconds, 10 seconds, not too long. Then the bird's given a choice between a green dot and a red dot. The bird's task is to remember when it's off, it pecks the red dot, it gets food. Okay? If it's, if it's, sorry, if it's the green dot, it gets it. And then the next trial, maybe it's, this, this, is, this is the sample. So that's the sample. Okay. So if the bird pecks this, then this, it gets food. If it pecks this, then this, it doesn't get you food. Pretty simple. The bird's task is to remember, but it's not. Uh, birds are very good at this very quickly, as you can probably imagine. So that's one way we can test memory in birds. You can ask them a question. Nikki Clayton did something very specific when she had food storing birds. And what they did is those birds um, stored food. They store food, they scatter hoard food in the, in the fall. Birds like chickadees, for example, black chickadees. They hoard food and then they recover it in the morning. They get up in the morning, they find food. It's the first thing they do. Then they go find other food to store. Birds like chickadees, marsh cats, things like that, they don't. Uh, they don't, they don't migrate south for the winter. They store food, they, they spend the winter here. Okay. That depends on memory, because if they don't remember where they put their food, they die. A black-capped chickadee weighs 11 grams. When it wakes up in the morning, if it doesn't eat within about 30 minutes, it starves them. Okay. And there's lots of chickadees, so it's not a problem. Because Problem the chickadees is people who let their freaking house cats out. Cats are bird murderers. Yes? Is this true for all birds? No. 
No. Oh, this? Can they all do matching the same? Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Wait, that's, like, that's like, like, I, like I have chickens, and you know, one of my chickens lost an eye. So like. So that means it basically can't get information from one hand back to uh, which, which other is? Uh, it's left eye. So now it doesn't get visual information into its right hand. Interesting. Yeah, but okay. it's other information comes in, auditory, all kinds of other things. Yeah, yeah. Computer, so, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's brilliant, but okay. Oh, yeah. You can try all kinds of, there's all kinds of new experiments. Yeah, I know. I've been, I'm sitting here thinking, like, what can I do? Oh, there's all kinds see of what fun she stuff. Can do. Okay. I'll, I can give you a list. Yeah. Good. How does this relate to pigeon guided missiles? Uh, you actually train pigeons like this. So with, with pigeon missiles, this was done in World War II. Uh, that the pigeons, pigeons were trained uh, to guide uh, bombs against uh, Japan. Never worked out. They didn't need to. We dropped two nuclear weapons on Japan into the war. So the birds are trained to. There's a certain target, and they're trained to peck at that target. And then when they get in the missile, it's a bomb. The bomb is dropped. We see a screen, or just out the window. And what they do is they're, they're, they've been reinforced for constantly pecking in the right place. And when they peck in the right place, it just changes how it moves. Yeah, that's all it is. There's a version. It's not uh, Mythbusters, but it's some of the old crew from Mythbusters. Oh, I can't remember the name of the show on Netflix. But there's an episode where they do that. And they do it with a friend of mine from UCLA. Here. So what happens then is we have these birds that soar food, like chickens. So if you got a bird like that, its life depends on memory. What if we get it to store food, but we cover up one eye? This is what Nikki Clayton did. And then we test when they go to recover the food in the aviary. Of course, they find the food with the same eye covered, but if you change the eye, they can't. However, if you wait 24 hours, they are able to recover. So the information travels from one hemisphere to another that takes about 24 hours in a, in that case, marsh tent. Okay. You can also do stuff. That's work by Nikki Clayton, C-L-A-Y-T-O-N. You ever seen the British panel show, Would I Lie to You? Have you ever seen that? Anyway, she was on the show once. It was the strangest thing because they sometimes, it's like British celebrities and they're trying to lie about things and sometimes they bring people on. And a segment of the show called This Is My, and this person says, This is my friend, remember, and then they, the other team has to guess who's what, who's telling the truth. And it was weird because this person comes out and they said, This is Nicola. And I, I'm yelling at the TV, screaming, which doesn't help anybody. To my wife, That's Nikki Clayton! She's right me under the table! It's like five feet tall. Boy, can she put away the beers. So, that's what you can do with food stores. The other thing you could do is you could test the memory in these different systems. The cool thing about a lot of birds is they just they don't have like one fovea like we do, one place where they have concentrated receptors in their eyes. They have two. So when you think about a bird's face to their head from above, to here and right here. Well, you should have one fovea for looking ahead. So you know what to peck at. Okay. You should also probably have one that goes this way, so you can fly and navigate properly. You may notice if you're uh, somebody who goes out, who's a jogger or a cyclist, who's a lot of Canada geese around, 
They don't move when they're looking straight at you. That's because they don't see you that well. When they're sideways, oh, they can see you. And in fact, a lot of times you'll, you'll notice, and take, take note of this now, you'll note that they'll turn their head. All they're doing is the same thing we do. If we see something in our periphery, we look at it, what they're doing is like, well, let me look at that with the thing from far away. Oh, jeez, there's a guy coming. And of course, that's when Canada East go, okay, come on, keep going. I'm not moving. Because Canada East are assholes. So, we could test. We think they have two separate visual systems. So what you do is you put a, a, a stimulus, you do the same matching the sample thing, but what you're doing is sometimes you're presenting it over here, the stimulus, but some, sometimes you're presenting it in the front. And then you see if it can travel between the left and right hemisphere. So you, you, you present the sample here, but you do the test here. Does that make sense? Or present it in the front and the test in the side, whatever. And it turns out that pigeons can transfer information between, hem sorry, can transfer information within hemispheres. So they can go side to front, but not front to side, and they cannot go left to right or right to left. And that's behavioral neuroscience done without looking at all inside a bird's head. That's actually done by, this is done simply behaviorally. And the reference, uh, let's see, done. The reference for that is, what is it? Yeah. That's Roberts, Phelps, I think this is the word. I think that's the order of the authors. I think that's the authors. One of them is me, one of them is Bill Roberts. And it might not, I don't know what the order is. But I think Bill's first, Bill Roberts. He also might be last, I can't remember. It's a long time ago. It's like 97? It's in the 90s. All right. Questions about that? Cool stuff, right? So you can do, find out of brains without actually, actually looking at a brain. That's, that's pretty neat. So, so let's see, in our nervous system, generally we have neurons and glial cells. You're gonna learn all about neurons and glial cells. Neurons do the nervous transmission, glial cells do support functions. There are lots of kinds of neurons, like seven that we'll talk about. There's at least five kinds of glial cells we'll talk about. These are probably things you know that neurons have axons and dendrites, right? Axons send out information, dendrites receive information. That's also a vast simplification of how it actually works. It's much more complicated than that, but we'll get there. We'll get there. So you get a whole bunch of neurons connected. It's called a tract or a nerve, depending upon where in the nervous system it is. So. If it's in the peripheral nervous system, it's called a nerve. So your ulnar nerve, right? Down here, your quote, funny bone, your ulnar nerve, right? And you can make that nerve fire by just, and then make your fingers move by just squeezing, pushing the right 
That's good. I got it. That's useful. You get it. That's missing. That guy. <laughs> so you push it enough, and it actually makes the neural inspire. You can actually feel a bundle of neurons. Right your owner, what people call it your funny bone. It's the same thing with your patellar reflex. You know, here when you do the thing with the that never works for me. I mean, and in the central nervous system, we call this a tract. This is sort of a general rule. Sometimes you'll see things that are called nerves that are actually in the central nervous system. Sometimes you'll see things that are called tracts. Uh, tracts, not as much. Nerves you'll see sometimes in central nervous system. Like the optic nerve, it's really part of your central nervous system. Your eyes are basically part of your brain. Which is a weird thing. You also have neurons. You have some neurons that have axons that are like 50, 60, 70 centimeters long. Which I find weird, and I don't, that's all I want to know about that. Somehow that creeps me out. I don't know why. Okay, so these are just terms you'll, you'll hear me use. The division of the, the nervous system into the CNS and PNS is really about anatomy. Right? It really is just like, this is, this is here, it's called that, it's here, it's called that. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that distinction. It's just that's how that distinction is being made in this case. Okay. So it's not telling us much about physiology. Though there are very, what's the word I'm looking for, important differences between the CNS and the PNS physiologically as well. The biggest one is in the, in the CNS, you don't tend to grow new neurons. Neurogenesis is pretty rare in the central nervous system in adults. It does happen. Again, you were probably told in intro, it doesn't happen. That's because it basically doesn't happen. It's one of these things, as I said the other day, it's like, you know, when you're in school, you're told something, and it's a very general thing, and then as you move on in school, you're told, that's, that's a little more subtle than that. There certainly is neurogenesis in adults. It's just not nearly, we measure the numbers in hundreds or low thousands per day, not millions or like you do in a, in a developing baby. Okay, so there are some differences, but mostly this is about anatomy and not physiology. And that's fine, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, physiologically, we can talk about the cranial nervous system and the spinal nervous system. So this is where the information comes from and goes to. You can probably guess that the cranial nervous system is going to be in your freaking head, hence cranial. And that the spinal nervous system is anything fed to, uh, fed from and sending information through the spine. Right? That's also an anatomical difference, but there's a physiological difference to where the information goes. Because anything that comes in basically from your neck below, but also the back of your head, we consider that's the spinal nervous system that goes through your spine. And anything, anything else, the front of your face and your head basically, uh, come in and go through directly from the brain. I'm not going to get too worked up about the cranial nerves um, because, frankly, I don't know them all. So if I don't know something, I don't think I'm going to expect you to know it. <laughs> That's only fair. 
Um, so cranial nerves, you've got 12 sets of two nerves. And as I said, they control inputs and outputs from the head. So you think about your eyes, you think about your salivary glands, think about talking, tongue movements. These are kind of important things, eating, speaking, kind of important things to you. Okay? All right. Ha. The brain stem, there we go. Here's the brain stem right there. I'm holding up the brain with the brain stem. That's not the function of the brain stem to hold up the brain, as I mentioned the other day. Um, the brain stem gets inputs from various senses. So they come in, let's think about touch. It's an easy one, right? Like, and it's just pressure. So if we're coming from Let's go here. Well, that's actually it, right there. Let's go right on my hand, because we'll talk with the ulnar nerve. So what happens is, I press on my hand, and I can feel something. I can feel it, right? That happens. There's pressure here. It fires neurons that then send their information all the way through my arm, up through here, back through there. And it goes down to about here. We'll get to exactly where eventually, don't worry. And then it goes up through my brain stem up to right hand, left part of my brain. And, like, it's not like I don't feel it right away, but actually the weird thing is um, that takes time. You know, it doesn't seem like it takes time, but there's actually lag. But it's made up for by the fact that it's so parallel. It's all happening so much at once. So you have to worry about it going, about the lag. You have to ask people what the ping is on their brain. So the brainstem gets input from the senses and it puts the body. So anything that isn't the head. So again, to move these, these two fingers, right? I'm sending the left hemisphere, it is very good. So that's roughly here, just roughly exactly where. And then a signal is sent down again through my spine. And out, up, through my shoulder, down my arm, and then eventually to my little fingers, and they move. So I think it is in the head. For my head, it's, and for all of you as well, it's, 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 a, it's the cranial system. That's a little bit different. So the brain stem, we can talk about the hind brain, the mid brain, and the diencephalon. And that's all underneath this. It's all, it, this is all subcortical. This is all in here. It's all the white stuff. High brain, midbrain, diencephalon is higher up. That's all it is. So, you'll hear some of these terms being used. They're not, I mean, there's a lot of really important functions that happen down there. See, mindfulness is kind of important, for example. But it's not higher order cognition. It's not even super interesting to me. But it's important. Hey, here's the cranial nerves. Great. That's whatever. That's fine. Um, I, 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 there's 12 sets of two. They control things like your eyes and your salivary glands. And why am I kneeling on the floor? What's wrong with me? You're all asking that, aren't you? I paid for this? You guys are not kidding most of the time, right? 
Part of development happens. So don't worry too much. Just know there's 12 sets of two. That's the important thing I want you to know about the, 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 the granulars. To me, that's all that really matters. And it, you know, left, right, because that's the sense. So they control your salivary glands, your tongue, your mouth, your eyes. I mean, if you really want to look at the diagram, we can certainly go back. I care so much about cranial nerves that I went to Wikipedia and I found a diagram and copied and pasted it into my presentation. So, will it come up? Probably, but the level of detail I expect you to know with cranial nerves don't worry too much about. Other stuff, yes, but this is not, to me, this isn't horribly interesting. I mention it because it's in the book and you probably should know that it exists. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the hindbrain. This does, uh, again, hindbrain. So, hind back, right? So back here. Okay. A lot of fine motor movements are happening there. Our sense of balance. You'll also hear people throw, when I mention balance, you'll hear people throw the cerebellum into the hindbrain. And that's okay. You can do that. I don't like to think of it as part of the brain. Not everybody does. But that's purely an anatomical thing. So that's back here. So fine, fine motor movements, uh, so things like this, the ability to move all your fingers separately. Here it sets a balance. So the cerebellum is doing a lot of that stuff. This may be important for movement. Also really, really, really quick movements, which humans aren't great at. You know what's great at really quick movements? Like frogs. Think about it, they see a, a bug flying, and they can stick their tongue out and grab it. That's pretty impressive. A lot of amphibians have bigger cerebellum when you compare it to their body weight than humans do. Curious how many amphibians have built a civilization? Answer that, none. So we win. We're also wrecking the place, so that's fine. We're killing amphibians. Yeah, and others. I've never seen an amphibian start a war to invade Ukraine. Let's go with that. Get its ass kicked. Ha ha. So, then there's the particular formation I talked about this the other day sleep and wakefulness. What's happening here? There's this little area. Well, I gotta get a better look at this. I'm not used to looking at it from below. It's like, what the hell? Okay. Right here is called the pawns. Okay? I bet there's a person in this room. I bet there's two people in this room that know what the word pont means in French. Bridge, isn't it? Sous le pont d'Avignon. So, I learn all kinds of things. Seems like water. Now I get that in my head all day. It's also, I'm going to have that in my head all day. Does that have to be you? Yeah. Yeah, it's happening to me. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I apologize. So, Pawns is a Latin word that means bridge. It's a bridge between the spinal cord and the uh, cerebrum, if you want to call it that, or the cord. Wakes you up. You don't just wake up, you wake up. Now, a lot of us wake up because we have an alarm. That's an entirely different thing. But if you wake up because of the light or when you want to wake up or you're supposed to, not an alarm. If you need an alarm to wake up, you're not sleeping enough. And that's 
well, almost certainly all of us, right? But if you have an alarm, you, if you have to have an alarm to wake up, but think about when you're on vacation for a weekend, but the alarm doesn't work, and you wake up all refreshed, that's how you're supposed to sleep. And that's your pawns, then sends information, sends a signal up to your cortex, and it's like, wake up, wake up. Right? Your mom used to wake up. I don't need this one this way when you get older. Wake up! Time to go to school. My mom never talked about But I mean the nice thing. Get into the midbrain. That's we'll get into the tectum. I'm gonna talk about all of these parts eventually in a lot of detail. We're just talking where we're going. So again, we're in the midbrain here. The superior colliculus, which is there. When I say it does vision, I'm being extremely vague on purpose. <laughs> What's happening, the superior tectum is really important in transferring visual information to back here, back to the optic, uh, some, what's something called the visual cortex or the occipital lobe for analysis. So your inferior uh, colliculus, so that's superior, inferior, above, below, does the same thing but with auditory information. So information, and then it sends it to temporal lobe. The process. So then just below the tectum, is the tegmentum, and I don't know that I can see that right here. Yeah, I'd have to get inside. No, I'm not doing that. Um, <laughs> but just below and over, so if you go in, get the tectum. And the tectum's important in, sorry, the tegmentum. It's important in movement, especially movement for vision. Or hearing. Like, you know, if you see something in the corner of your eye, you move your head. That kind of thing. Okay? Or you hear something, you turn your head towards it to look at it. That's a lot of what is going on at the tegmentum. It's an extremely simple system. We have a lot of sort of these parallel systems that do movement, do vision, do audition, whatever. There's a lot of redundancy in a human brain. You don't want to lose any of it, but there's a lot of redundancy. So here's the midbrain, so you can see again an idea here of what that looks like. So again, that's all this stuff here. Okay. I wonder if I can get that in there. Uh, whenever I take it out though. Anyway, you can see that it's all this stuff here. That's the midbrain. Okay. So you can see colliculus, colliculus. Sounds like the name of some Roman emperor. I am Colliculus. My impression of a Roman emperor. He'd say it in Latin, though. He would say, Ego sum Colliculus. Probably a much better accent than I do, because I don't know what a Latin accent sounds like, because those people are all dead. Oh, I got all excited there. A lot of this is just me entertaining myself. If you guys learned something, great. Um, I just don't care. I just don't care. Um, I actually care a great deal, but it's much more fun to pretend you don't care. This diagram, by the way, is taken from a very famous textbook. The famous textbook is called Gray's Anatomy. 
Yes, the TV show was named after an old textbook. The TV show that's been on since what? Before 9-11? Like, I bet people in this room were born after the show premiered. It's a little weird. And I've never watched it. And it's to the point now, it's like, well, I can't catch up. I'll just get the box set. Anyway, it doesn't interest me. The only medical show I ever liked was House, just because he was a sarcastic jerk who yelled at people. My father said to me, I was going to say it before he died, obviously, because he's speaking to me on the grave. Um, he said, Dave, you should watch House. You'd really like it. I said, why would I like it? I don't like medical shows. He said, oh, you'd like it. He's just like you. And I talked to him a couple days later. I said, so it's really good, but he's an asshole. He said, have you ever talked to yourself? I said, oh, <laughs> fair point, Dad. professional know-it-alls. It's not easy. People Paul and Dwayne, they're just jerks. You understand these people are my friends, right? Okay, diencephalon. It's not a great diagram, but you can see we're getting just below. This is, the diencephalon is basically, you're saying, wait a second, isn't that quite, yeah, they all have different names that are they're, they're redundant. This is this orange stuff. We're talking about the orange stuff. Okay. And down, yeah, basically the orange stuff. So, and I talked about this the other day, but the hypothalamus does hunger, does thirst, sex, thermoregulation. So if your hypothalamus is messed up, you might be shivering when it's warm. You might be thirsty when you really don't need water. You might be hungry, but you know, you're not really hungry. Your stomach's full. Okay? You can probably guess there are receptors for delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol, delta 9 THC, and the hypothalamus. Now, if you know this, but if you get high, sometimes you get really hungry. And then you have to order McDonald's at 11 o'clock at night. Sort of the law. And you find yourself going, oh God, if I, I've had 19 pops? I'm just going to be pissing all night. This is, I did this to avoid drinking. Some of these are personal, obviously. And there are receptors for THC in your thumb. And the thalamus is the sensory router I talked about the other day. Now, let's get into the forebrain. This is the lobes. Now we're getting into the lobes. Okay? Four, front. You say, well, it's not really the front, Dave, because it's above the... Yeah, that's, it's the order it develops. You start with the simple stuff, and then, you know, you, you, the wrinkling bits, basically, are made at the end. When a baby's first born, many of these sulky and uh, giant are in there. So if you look at a baby's brain, which would be a weird thing for you to do, but if you have, if you're an MRI technician, so if you look at a baby's brain, you'll see it's actually quite smooth still. There's some major fissures and sulky that are there, but the ones that we all have aren't there yet. This is now collectively known also as the cortex, or as I keep calling it, the wrinkly bits. 
So there's the old cortex, as you can see on this diagram here. And then there's the neocortex, the new cortex. So the neocortex is your frontal, is, is well, if, if we go from the inside again, that's neocortex. And that, the orange stuff closer to the top, the orange stuff here. Okay. So closer to the top, the orange stuff here. Uh, we would still we'd probably call that old cortex. Old meaning develop, uh, evolutionarily old. It doesn't mean it's old in you. Well, it's older than other parts of your brain, but that's not where the distinction is. Okay. There's so much gear around there. I forget where I put stuff. All right. The basal ganglia, and it's that's an easy one to remember. Basal means at the base of, right? And ganglia means a bunch of neurons. It's all a ganglion is. So the basal ganglia is at the base of the neocortex. And this is also important in movement. And the substantia nigra we talked about at the very beginning is there. Okay. And if you don't have enough dopamine receptors in the basal ganglia, that's when you have Parkinson's. So you get the shaky movement and trouble moving. And you, there's a very simple, you might think, well, how would you treat that? Well, maybe just give people lots of dopamine. That might work. Except you can't do that. It, it, you can't just inject dopamine into someone's veins. It'll never get to your brain because there's a blood brain barrier, so it won't get through. Well, maybe you could give people a precursor to dopamine. That's, that's one of the treatments for, one of the first treatments for Parkinson's was giving people dopa. Levodopa, L-dopa. And I spell it out for you now because I embarrassingly was called it a horse like this on a test, L-dopa. Like it was the name of a matador. The TA who marked my test literally wrote on it, Dave, it's not the name of a matador. El Dope. So, so, thing is, they knew what I meant, that's fine, and this is a way for me to, first of all, make fun of myself, but secondly, to tell you that if I can, on a test or something, not a paper, but on a test, if I can read and you wrote something, I know what you mean. Don't try to combine two and hope. Well, that's the hypocampus. You spell it like hypothalamus for the first part, and then campus. No, that's not going to do. But if I can figure out what you mean, it's fine. Okay. So if you, I mean, I, I've made this. I've spelled substantial negra two different ways. I think it's yeah. negra, not negra. Yeah. Um, so yeah, as long as you, I know what you mean, you're fine. Funny story. It comes back enough later. Okay. Oh boy, that all came up quickly. Um, limbic system. This diagram here. Hippocampus. Important memories we're talking about. Emotion in the amygdala. This is a wild thing because 
one of the ways that people figured out that the amygdala did emotion, strong emotions, is they thought, well, we don't know what this does, and we don't know where strong emotions are, but this does that, which is usually not a very good way to figure stuff out. Turn it worked. That's why this is the question mark. Is that emotion? Yeah, some here. Yeah. Strong emotions. Surprise here. The accumbens, we talked about that the other day, it runs on the neurotransmitter dopamine. So the accumbens is your is part of your reward circuit. And it's right near hippocampus, which is important in memory, and right near middle important in emotion. You want to remember things that feel good. Or things that feel bad. Because it makes sense that those things are only close together and connect. I said the other day, it doesn't, doesn't always work that way. Uh, especially between sort of evolutionarily different systems. But when we get within a system, like within the limbic system, eh, it's pretty common that things that recite each other, they're connected. Okay. Now, we also have an olfactory bulb. Ours is very small. Smell is a weird sense. It's a chemical sense. It just affects intensity of chemicals. That's all your sense of smells do. Right? And it's very good. You know, we, we can do with smells that we can smell, we can do about one part in, in 10 billion, so that's pretty impressive. There's a lot of things we can't smell. So Natural gas has no smell to humans. That's why we put hydrogen sulfide in, we put the rotten egg smell in it, so we can smell when there's a gas leak. But that, that isn't actually in natural gas. But if it's something we can smell, we can, we're pretty good at it, just not a huge range of stuff. And this is such an ancient system, the, the, the smell system, that it doesn't even go through thalamus. Everything else goes through thalamus, other sensory systems, the smell doesn't. It goes straight to the olfactory. We're much better at smelling than we think we are. It's just that we're so visually dominant that we tend to think of the other senses as being not as good. But we're, we're, we're pretty good at it. A friend of mine is probably the world's foremost expert in the sense of smell. Her name is Rachel Hers, or Hertz, depending on if you pronounce both ways. Her name is Rachel, that's why I just don't Rachel. Um, and she's awesome. Okay, now we're starting to get into the spinal stuff. This is actually kind of interesting because what we have, what humans have, our spinal nervous system, if you want to use that distinction, has different, different parts of the body, different sections of skin, or surf body surface, if you want to go with that, get input from and have output to certain parts of the spine. So you have these, so your spinal column yeah, there's running two in the spinal column that control and receive input, so to and from. 
these different patches of skin we have are called dermatomes. A dermatome is just a patch of skin that receives input from and output to that part of the skin from a certain part of the spinal column. So here we go. Let's look at, well, let's look here, right? So you see all that, all there, is all controlled. It's right about here. So you see then that if you get a break in your spinal column, everything that you've actually had severed, everything below that break, you won't feel anything and you won't be able to move. Everything above it will work pretty much normally. Okay, so you're about people, if you quote, break your neck, if you break it high enough up, so right around here, about C3, which is right about there, you will get quite a collision. You won't be able to move your hands, your arms, your legs. And in fact, when you, let's say, anybody here ever had a pinched nerve? Nerve? Jeez, you guys just sit around doing nothing? Okay. But it's weird because sometimes you'll feel like, oh, I feel weird tingling in my shoulder, and it's actually not your shoulder that's tingly at all. Well, your shoulder's tingly, but if it's your shoulder, let's go right there. So that's C4. The C4 segment is right about there. You actually have a part of your spinal column, your nerves being pinched, so the information can't get in or go out. My younger brother, Dan, uh, his was down around L. Where's his, where's his injury? It's very, very, it's very low. So he can sometimes have real trouble walking. And that's from bending over wrong when you pick up equipment, picking up gear. That's all that's from. Because my brother's a musician and they moved here a lot, but he did when he was younger. Um, my, my, my father broke his back in 1964. Sorry, 66. In Wawa. How many people can say they broke their back in the wall? Very few people. But it, it wasn't snapped. What happened was he actually, uh, doesn't matter why he was there, but he was at this garage in Wawa. Because we lived here when I was a small baby. It's dumb luck from here. And it was very bright. It was the winter, so a little bit of snow blindness walking to this garage. And they didn't have a hoist. They had a grease pit. So that's when the car goes over top of you in the pit. My dad just fell in the pit. And he fled on his feet. And he was like, oh, hurt? But he was okay. Okay, after he drove back to Sioux Saint Martin. In his 1964 Chevelle. God, that was a cool car. I mean, it was a long time. I still, it, blue flames would come out of the, because he did some stupid things, because my dad did things like that. And then he got home, and he was like, oh, my back's really sore. He woke up, and he couldn't move his legs. <laughs> what happened was, some of the, vertebrae got cracked, so he could still move, but then as he slept, it inflamed, and it crushed some of the nerves, and he couldn't move, which must have been a little bit frightening for both my mother and my father. I was one, must be great for my mom, I've moved to a strange place, I don't hardly know anybody here. My husband will be in the hospital for the next six months. 
Basically, the same injury my brother had. They treated literally outpatients. He went into the hospital, he did it, and they took him out. This was in 2010. My dad was in the hospital for six months. <laughs> it's a different time. Where apparently he ran some kind of cigarette smuggling ring, but that's a whole different matter. But that's what everybody smoked all the time. So if you ever actually do get an injury, and you think it's weird that the doc your, your doctor's taking out a, a, a little pin or something and just poking on you, they're, they're, not, they're not, maybe they are a sadist. Maybe that's what they're, they're probably not, it's probably not back. They're probably just doing that to try to see if you've got any back, if, if you're hurt yourself in the back. But if you say, I've got tingling in some part of my body, literally, when you go to your MD, they're gonna start poking you with, and you, now you can see exactly where they're gonna poke you. Above and below, they'll do all these different things. They'll say, okay, we know where the problem probably is. Now we get you for an MRI and we can look at it. Right. But that diagnostic tool, literally using a pen or a paper clip or a set of calipers, is a, still something that neuropsychologists use to this day. We get inside the spinal column, we have what are called the dorsal and ventral roots. The dorsal root, so dorsal towards the back, right, is where the input, input from the sensory receptor comes. And the ventral root goes out to movement. So the part of your spine that controls these two fingers, not only, you know, the, um, the ventral root controls the movement and the dorsal root controls the sensory input. And sensory input here, what I'm talking about is, is touch. And touch is actually four separate senses. Because you've got pressure, you've got heat, you've got cold, and you've got pain. Those are four separate senses. Remember when you learned there were five senses in school? That's not true. There's like six in vision alone. So it's, it's, it's like, it's probably about 23, I think is the number I saw once. But fine, let's just call it touch. But remember, it's four separate things. You know, heat receptors, cold receptors, pain receptors, and pressure receptors. So this, in fact, orientation, dorsal and ventral root with sensory and motor, that's how vertebrates work. It's not just humans. Anything with a, with a backbone works like this. It's called the Belmagendi law. Like, it's a law. Everything works that way. It has a, it has a spinal cord. So you work like this, so does your cat. If you have a pet bird, so does your bird. If you've got fish, they work like this. called the internal system or the autonomic system. I tend to use autonomic, but that's just because that's what I was taught. It, 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 there's nothing wrong with calling the internal um, It has two subsystems, the sympathetic nervous system, which, which does arousal. This is, all, this is basically when we secrete hormones 
into our bloodstream. And it then does things with various organs. The sympathetic nervous system is arousal. It's getting you to fight or run away. You might guess that a lot of times in elementary school, my report card said, David can't sit still, is very fidgety. Also says things like, tends to take over group work. Um, yeah, I didn't sit still very well. I, I literally remember my mother saying to like my grade two teacher, she took my hockey cards once. My dad threatened to call the police. It was the greatest moment of my life. But, and my dad came to the parent-teacher night in 1972. Dads didn't go to those in 1972. And I'm standing outside the room waiting. Except I'm much shorter. And I hear my dad say, give my son back his property or we're gonna involve the police in this. And the best part of this is that my dad says, now here, David, take your hockey cards. Now, do you ever trade in class? And I never did, because I didn't. I was a very, really rule-governed kid for a long time. I became much more of a, I think the word is dickhead. Uh, <laughs> I got, uh, yeah, much more disruptive now. But, and my dad says, so take these. Now remember, you can't trade them in class, but make sure you put them on a big pile on your desk so the teacher can see them. Which I realized now is my dad saying, my kid's gonna do this every day. Here, I got some of these for you. But I was like, okay, daddy. I don't know why I brought that up. I thought I would. All right, I'm fidgety. Welcome back. Because then after that was over, my mother said, well, you said, sir, you said that David fidgets a lot. Yeah, he moves around a lot. But I don't think that affects anything. Do you? <laughs> this is the greatest thing you've ever seen. Miss Byers. You know, one of these for you, Miss Byers. <laughs> bitch. Um, she took my hockey cards. You don't take a seven-year-old boy's hockey cards. That's against the law. It's got to be against some law. When we repatriated the Constitution in 1982, that should have been in the Constitution. You also can't take kids' hockey cards. A little prescriptive for a constitutional document. I'll not deny that. She's dead now. It's okay. Yeah, probably. I thought that, actually. She's probably dead, which is not a very nice thing, but she probably is. She was probably 30. Yeah, she's probably dead. <laughs> Whereas my grade one teacher, Ms. McKinnon, I don't think everyone in this room is older than her. I swear she was like 19. Because you used to be able to go to, right out of high school, go to one year of teacher's college and be a teacher. It's 1971. She had a dress on, I think it was over her belt. It was a little mini dress and she's got go-go boots on. I'll, I'll, I'll find a picture, I'll show you all. Wild, it's a different time. Anyway, sympathetic nervous system does arousal. Gets you going, gets your kicks and ass or run away. Usually the best move is to run away. And the parasympathetic system cools you down. That's basically the opposite. You Some people just aren't cut out to be teachers and she's on that list. I don't think she just cut out for the 1970s, generally when things in school changed drastically, went from sitting in rows to do whatever you want. It's the 70s. All the kids were full of cocaine. No, that's not true. Made that part up. 
mostly meth I was doing when I was seven. Um, basically, this is a hormonal system. These are neurotransmitters, but they get, my voice did a front, neurotransmitters. But when it's released in your bloodstream, they then act on organs in very much the same way that neurotransmitters act with neurons. We'll, of course, talk a lot about that in the course. But they do it to organs. Then it's a little slower. It's 45 seconds or a minute sometimes before you get the actual arousal when something bad happens. I told you the other day about an accident we almost had. And my wife avoided it, and I told her, pull over, you're going to feel really weird in a second. She did. So it's basically a hormonal system. Okay. So, let's talk about some general principles of nervous system organization, and I will tell you that this list of things that I've gleaned from various places is, can make a great question for a test, but it can also help you study and organize your thoughts. Okay? You'll see this as we go through, but this is pretty general. So generally what happens in, in any nervous system is the sequence goes from input, so that's getting sensory information in, integration, meaning you do something with the sensor information, also use, you integrate that with what you already quote know. So other knowledge you have. Also stored up here. And the output is movement of some sort, or just doesn't matter what it is, it can be focusing on something with your eyes, can be anything. So it goes input, integrate, output, generally. The integrate step is, is, is one of the big things here because this is, this is basically thinking. It doesn't have to be thinking you're sort of consciously aware of. Right, you read those words, it just happens. You have to think about reading too much. Reading a second language, if you're not completely fluent, that can be complicated, but you can basically just look at those words and know what they mean. You, nobody here had to go, is, I really did, did that in school, sounding out words. You don't have to do that anymore, right? Sometimes you read a second language, you do. We have what's a functional division between sensory and motor systems. They tend to be right beside each other. So the sensory system, the, the sensory part for your, this part of your hand is right beside the motor part for this part of your hand in your, in your uh, brain. But there's a functional division between the two. So uh, a sensory bit of neurons or processing space, or whatever you want to call it, is always sensory. A motor part is always motor. They don't switch back and forth. The inputs and outputs get crossed, so what happens is right goes to left, left goes to right. It seems odd, uh, and I've still not had anybody explain to me evolutionarily why this ever happened. So there's a lot of theories, but I don't think anybody explained to me that I thought, oh, that makes sense. I'll say that one. We have symmetry and asymmetry, which sounds like means nothing. Well, generally, there's a lot of symmetry. Okay. Like, functionally, those look, or sorry, not functionally, uh, physiologically and anatomically, they're basically the same, right, left and right? However, um, there are asymmetries in 
almost all brains. Uh, I talked about the left, left language, right spatial thing. That's certainly an asymmetry. Your left Broca's area does the meaning of words for production. Your right Broca's area does the emotion of words. Extremely generally what I'm saying here, okay? So we have symmetries and asymmetries. Your nervous system is basically about excitation and inhibition. All you're doing is things are turning off and on. Now, the off doesn't mean like a light switch. The off is more like a drawn bow, okay? So it's more like you've got a bow drawn. You're not firing an arrow, but you're ready to fire one. You're inhibiting firing the arrow. The inhibition in this case is holding the string from the, from the bow, right? That's the inhibition, letting go is firing. Neurons don't just sit there not doing anything. They're either firing or getting ready to fire. That's, that's what they do. That allows us to move and make decisions very quickly. We have multiple levels of function. How many times have I talked about different parts that have done things with memory? Or different things with a movement? I think I've mentioned movement three different times. We have many levels of function. So you have some, well, a lot of redundancy in the system. But every time there's a new level of function, it's adding something else as well. So Hewlings Jackson came up with these, with many of these. The one that Hewlings Jackson, who was a neurologist from British, um, the thing that I think most people give him credit for here is call is, is, is how nervous systems are hierarchical and parallel, which sounds contradictory completely, except that there is a hierarchy. Stuff goes from your eyes through your thalamus, to your occipital lobe. There's five different layers in your occipital lobe that do different things. Things are sent out to different parts of your parietal lobe, all for analysis. That's obviously a hierarchy. One above the other, that's all hierarchy means. However, within each level of the hierarchy, stuff's being done in parallel. It's all happening at once. We couldn't do it in series. Well, we could, except that we'd be lost in thought always. Think about your eye. Your eye has 130 million receptors in each eye. Imagine if you had to read the state of each of those receptors, one after the other. Let's pretend. How long do you think? Would it take a second? That seems kind of slow, right? Tenth of a second for the nervous system to read the state of a receptor? Let's say a tenth, because a hundredth, we'll do this in, in orders of magnitude. So a hundredth of a, let's say it's a tenth of a second. So it takes a tenth of a second. We're going to do the math. R slash, they did the math. So, I'm hit with the sink. Um, tenth of a second, 130 million, so it's going to be what? 1.3 million seconds. So 1,300,000. One to 1,300,000 seconds. We're going to divide that by 60 to get minutes. 
That's 21,666 and two-thirds minutes. Oh, we're going to divide that by 2048 hours. That's 902 hours. Or days. And hours. 30. We'll divide that again by 12. Okay, so it'll take two and a half years to read each the input and each drop. Yeah, I don't think we're doing it in series. <laughs> I think we're doing it now. Okay. I think I did that right. I'm going to skip one set of division. Anyway, we're doing things all the time, all at once. But also, there's a level to it. It's really contradictory. And I mean, I, I remember talking to uh, uh, Brandon Champ, Dr. Champ in biology, who's ecology, good guy. And we were talking about this, and I said that nervous systems are parallel and hierarchical, and a bunch of us were nodding. He's like, how is that even possible? Because, of course, that's not the kind of work he does. I explained it to him. Uh, it's one of those things that it's, it's hierarchical, but, uh, sorry, it's, it's, it's uh, it is, yeah. but it's also contradictory. But so is this, symmetry and asymmetry. A lot of these things are contradictions. They're true, by the way, but they're contradictory statements. We also, functions localized and distributed. Oh, great. So it's here, but also everywhere. There's a lot of people who will tell you this. You may have been told this. Who has heard, you know, we only use 90% of our, sorry, 10% of our brains. Heard that? Yeah. Well, that's stupid. Whenever anybody says that, I ask what 90% they would like removed. You're always using all of it all the time. Just because a neuron isn't firing doesn't mean it's not doing anything. It's getting ready to fire. I talked about that. The bow is drawn. You're always using all of your brain. Nobody's left or right brain either. And you know, your left brain, that's creativity. And your right brain does logic. And you're an idiot. That's stupid talk. There's too many people who know tiny bits of things and then act like they know everything. R slash confidential, uh, confidential, no, confidently uh, incorrect. That's another one, another fun subreddit. You need the whole thing. It's always working. So it's localized and distributed. Great example here is language. Because if we think about this, and there's, I know there's at least one person in this room that speaks more than one. There's at least, I think, two people with their hands up, three or four or five maybe, who speak more than one language. And if you learn the other language past being a little kid, when you speak that language, we put you in an fMRI, your whole freaking cortex lights up. It's hard. Language is hard. Except when it's your mother tongue, and it's trivial. One little part over here, one little part over here lit up. So things actually can be localized and distributed. And this is how people can regain function after a stroke. Because you have localized function, and right away, if you get some sort of insult to a, some important area for whatever the skill may be, you lose that function. But you can be retrained through physical therapy and neuropsychology, basically, to learn how to do things again, walk, speak, whatever. It's actually pretty amazing. Any questions on that? So here's an example of how the nervous system is hierarchical and parallel. Don't worry. This is an 
by way of example, I don't expect you to reproduce this value. This is the human visual system. You know what? Sometime in November, you'll understand this. <laughs> Very cool. It's actually not that complicated, just that the diagram is complicated. And it's not the whole story, but it's a good chunk of the But you can see this stuff must be, you can see the hierarchical nature of things where stuff comes in and goes to different systems. But you can also see the fact that this must be happening in parallel, because if it wasn't, we would be constantly lost in thought just trying to recognize a triangle. All right. Any questions? Yes, please. So there's no way for us to like overclock our brains. To what? Overclock our brains. Oh. <laughs> your brain. No. I, I'm not laughing at you with that. That reminds me of a student I had a long who was to overclock computers all the time. But they were never. It was. It was a bad idea when you do it. I bought a computer. Um, he said, just don't ever call Microsoft for support. Fire <laughs> the copies of Windows. Anyway, yeah, there's no way to really do that. Can you get better at things? Sure. But can we actually do something to our brain to make it work? It's, the, it's, it's a computer, sort of, but it doesn't work the same way a computer works. Like it's, it's so different. The analogy of human brain is computer First of all, this is the most powerful freaking computer that, on the whole freaking planet. The second thing is it's not really a computer. So any questions? Other questions? All right, uh, good, uh, go home. Even if you have another class, go home. Right. Say I said so. Thanks everybody.
So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, these are copyrighted, uh, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved, so you can redistribute this all you want, but if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, and also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, most of the mu the vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, and that was called Podsafe Music. So this is all music that I have, uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to uh, Put on these podcasts. Uh, if you are interested, I can oftentimes find the, the name of the band. The name of the band will be listed in the post, and uh, go look these bands up and, and buy their music. Because um, if they're cool enough to let me use this, you should be cool enough to pay ninety nine cents or whatever to buy one of their songs. Uh, on that note, I will see you next time.